On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Hey, Hollywood, you ready to go smooth up in ya, baby? Okay, that that doesn't sound right. And it's supposed to be it's supposed to be smooth jalapeno. So <laughs> smooth jalapeno. Baby, we are all about lies, deceit, and treachery, which as many of our listeners know, because we've been talking so much shit lately about lies, deceit, and treachery from the Monsters of Rock Cruise. We were able to catch up with Mick Sweda from Lies, Deceit, and Treachery, and also the original guitar player with the Bullet Boys. Lies, Deceit, and Treachery, Mick Sweda, Lonnie Vincent, Jimmy DeAnda, and Andrew Friedman. So three-fourths of the original guys from the original Bullet Boys band, and they blew us away on the ship, right? So, you know, for those who don't know, when we went on the Monsters of Rock cruise, Lies of Seat and Treachery and Bullet Boys were both scheduled to be on the cruise, and they were both on the cruise. There was a couple of bands that were supposed to make it that didn't quite make it, so that changed the schedule a little bit, and Lies of Seat and Treachery ended up opening the first show on the ship. And after that show was done, I, I could have swore I either turned to you or I turned to Tony and said, there's no way Mark's going to be able to do that. They blew me absolutely away. Well, I had already seen Mark's version of the Bullet Boys recently and really just, you know, he does his thing. I didn't have any uh, intentions on being able to catch them on the boat just because there were too many other things that I wanted to see. I wasn't there to do a comparison or anything like that. I'd seen them recently. But yeah, I mean, they blew me away. I think we said that in our recaps. So if you want to know more about it, you can check out the Monsters of Rock uh, recaps and and talk about that. But uh, this episode is all about our conversation with Mick Sueda. And we had a great conversation with him. We talked about all kinds of things, King Cobra and Bullet Boys and lies, deceit and treachery. And uh, we just he, he was super, super gracious with his time. And I'm excited to uh, be able to share this with the listeners. Yeah, it's so accessible, right? So on the ship, he's walking by, and uh, I, I think I said out loud, or oh, there's a real bullet boy. He turned around and talked to us for like five, ten minutes probably. Such nice guy. So when I get home, I'm like, oh, you know what? I should friend him and just kind of follow what he's doing. He accepted the friend request. I I uh, messaged him, just said, hey, would you you know like to do an interview with us? Messaged me back right away, set up a time was on time, so professional, so nice. I mean, you can't ask for more. You know, as does many of the people that Hollywood reaches out to, they all, you know, they friend him right away because, I mean, for God's sakes, he's Hollywood. I mean, how do you not friend Hollywood? Come on. 
you're just jealous of the bumper and he did a great one yes he did yeah no it was it was good uh i love it so i have nothing bad to say about our time on the boat i have nothing bad to say about our conversation with mick and uh it's awesome uh, i don't think we should uh suck up any more time i think we should just play this interview with mick sweater let's do it hell on my heels baby let's go oh yeah enjoy it hey this is mick sweater from lies to seat and treachery and you're listening to steven and Hollywood on the growing up rock podcast now crank that shit up Welcome to the Growing Up Rock Podcast, Mick Sueda. What's going on, brother? You guys are going on, man. Nice to uh, chat with you after we uh, met on the boat. That was fun, man. I'm glad you guys came out. Absolutely. We had a great time, and your band was the first band that we laid our eyes and ears on, the uh, Monsters of Rock Cruise, and it was unbelievable. Yeah, a little bit of the old stuff. You know, to start the uh, start the cruise off right, and uh, hopefully it was loud enough and and raunchy enough, man. I I always say I really can't play like I play with those guys. You know, Lonnie and Jimmy, of course. You know, were a big part of my life, and and uh, it's funny how when I get with those guys, that's when it's it just feels like freedom playing. You know, it's it's really interesting if. I mean, I've, I've played with other groups and other bands and other people, and it's just, it's never quite the same. So yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, I have to tell you, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. Obviously, the first Bullet Boys record for me, and, and I think Sonny will tell you this as well, that first record for us is kind of a desert island record for both of us. Wow, what a sweet thing to say. Yeah, I mean, top to bottom, we love that record. Now, I personally like the first three Bullet Boys records. In different degrees, the first one obviously is is untouchable in my opinion, but I like the first three records quite a bit, and you were on all three of those records, correct? Yeah, I, I, uh, I quit the band in 93. I quit my own band in 93, and uh, they, I guess, went on and released a bunch of records after that, but I didn't have anything to do with them. Other than there's one that was much later on. Uh, we got in the studio and sort of ha- had another stab at some of the material, and I'm on that. But yeah, that's it. Yeah. Talking about that first record. So, Mick, you know, we met. You're a real nice guy, but you almost got me fired one day. You just don't know it. Oh, boy. So, oh boy. I worked for a retailer, and we were so into the first Bullet Boys record. That we would, you know, stock in the morning before the store opened and we would be playing the music over the intercom because we worked on electronics and we were in charge of the music. So my best friend puts in the first Bullet Boy CD, we're good to go, blah, 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 blah. Well, we forgot that we were opening an hour early for Senior Citizens Day. (laughs) And so when I realized that at 8.58 a.m. that we were about to open at 9 a.m., hell on my heels is about to start. I am frantically running to the CD player to go shut it off as it said, one, two, fuck you. And we let every senior (laughs) citizen in the room. I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting fired today. (laughs) And nobody noticed. 
And I was like, woo, lucky for me. god i'm so sorry that uh yeah that probably should have been edited to <laughs> one one two gosh darn it or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't think it would have quite uh had the same effect though <laughs> now was something like that was that a markism or was that something ted you know said hey why don't you try this or, or you know because that's that's such a small thing, but it ends up being kind of a big overall thing in the attitude of that particular song. 
what I've noticed over time, and this goes out to, you know, just people in general, I think, but you got, you guys all know songs that come on and there's one particular part and you can bet that six people in the room are all going to say that part or sing that little, just that little snippet of the song, because that's what sort of resonates with them, you know? And, And I think you're alluding to that with this particular thing, how that came about. I'm not really sure. Ted was very private when he went in and did vocals with Mark. We really didn't sit in on many of those sessions. So I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Mark, you know, didn't come up with that. That's, it sounds very much like something he would do. Yep. And, you know, for Ted to let that stick is a credit to him too. Yeah. I mean, that's just, and you're absolutely right in the parts. I mean, you can name 50 songs and zone in on one thing, you know, with Tom Sawyer by Rush, it's the one little drum fill thing that uh, Neil Peart does that everybody mimics every time, you know, that song comes on. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of something right now that, you know, I've heard people just it doesn't have to be a lyric. It can be, you know, oh, yeah. And you can guarantee people are going to just. Oh, yeah. Jump in on that. Without a doubt. All right. Well, so before we get too far into this discussion, we want to talk about your earliest musical memories. So do you remember what your introduction into rock and roll was when you were a kid? Well, it's, uh, it is difficult because my parents weren't necessarily musical. I know when I was much younger, my mom was into Engelbert Humperdinck and she had Streisand records. And my dad was more of a pop guy. I remember him having, uh, like Tommy James and the Shondells tapes. And I really like those. I mean, I do to this day. I love those, those pop sixties pop numbers. Um, you know, Bobby Sherman and I'm dating myself, but that's just the way it is. So anything that was pop or bubblegum just immediately had an effect on me. And then as I got a little bit older and I got into my uncle's record collection, he had things like iron butterfly Steppenwolf and heavier stuff. And I was a huge Iron Butterfly fan. I mean, that sounds kind of crazy, but I was one of those guys that memorized Inagata DeVita, you know, the 20 minute whole side of that record. I mean, I knew every freaking note of that, you know, the drum fill I could recite to you or the drum solo, I should say. So I guess you would, you might call that progressive pop. Who knows? But from there, I just kind of evolved into Emerson Lake and Palmer. And they became a huge influence on me. And and even though I wasn't playing anything at the time, the sounds that came out of their records just resonated with me and and the note choices that Keith made and and some of the noise he would make. And, you know, back then, I I always wanted to apologize to my mom because, you know, one of my favorite songs was called Toccata from Brain Salad Surgery. And it's a piece by uh, another composer but the way Keith interpreted it was virtually almost completely noise. And it was just such a beautiful sounding piece of music to me. And I used to play it all the time, very loudly. I'm sure uh, I drove my mom nuts, but I mean, that doesn't really speak to me as a, as a guitar player, you know, growing up, but I'm just making the point that those sounds and those note choices and those you know, design sure. resonated with me for the rest of my life. Right. And so what, what was it that made you, you know, pick up a guitar or versus another instrument? What pushed you towards the guitar? 
Well, it never really occurred to me to play an instrument. And uh, I was walking down the street in my little town called Randolph in Western New York. And evidently a new kid had moved into town and he was sitting on his step and he had this Telecaster thin line. And I was walking by and I thought, whoa, man, that guy's got a guitar. How wild is that? I've never even seen anybody play guitar at that point. So I just walked up and introduced myself. And, uh, you know, he was a really cool cat. And uh, Jim Larson is his name. He's still, I think we're friends on Facebook to this day. And um, the next thing I knew, I was determined to get my own guitar. And that sort of inspired me to do that. And I ended up getting, I think, some weird Japanese guitar. But shortly after that, I got a Telecaster of my own. And uh, we ultimately ended up starting a band. (laughs) Nice. Now, are any of your family members, your parents or anything, are they musicians at all? Or did you just come by that talent by, you know, hard work? Yeah, just sheer will and hard work. My sister played a little piano and we always had a piano around, but I never, I never was interested in playing it. So yeah, once I got a guitar and started fumbling around on it, it quickly sort of devoured my life. Up to that point, I was playing hockey and and interested in uh pursuing that but uh once i got that guitar it just sort of consumed my every day yeah do you remember what the first song you learned the first rock song you learned on guitar it probably was 25 or 6 to 4 oh nice you could play it on one string and it was it's the first riff i remember actually being able to figure out yeah yeah, now there's a rumor that did you get a drama scholarship? Yeah, when I was in school, we had this really cool English teacher, and she, uh, in fact, that was actually the first show I ever played was in English class. Uh, my buddy and I played the Ballad of Dwight Fry by Alice Cooper, and she, I guess, saw something in us. You know, I was in school plays and you know performed as much as I could. And yes, she put us in for theater scholarships at the local community college. And that's why I ended up going to uh, college for the next two years. Oh, that's cool. So let's talk a little bit about Stormtrooper. So uh, it was pretty heavy, like that EP you guys released. Are, are you the one doing the solos on Armies of the Night, Steamroller, all that? I think we split them. I, I can tell mine are, are a little more melodic, I think, and, and not so chaotic and frantic as the other guy yeah but yeah that i don't remember much about that that was kind of a a weird situation for me because i wasn't i'm not like a thrash guy or even a metal guy for that matter you know i mean i'm i'm more of a power pop cat but you know they were nice kids from new mexico and they seemed to have an idea of how to sort of get somewhere in the industry and i i was I think at that point I was probably in three other different bands and uh, none of them were playing out. You know, we were just rehearsing and recording and, but that one storm troopers seemed to, uh, they seem to have more gumption to get things going. And it's interesting that uh, how that came apart. I'm not really sure how it even came apart, but yeah, it didn't last very long. Yeah, you're right. Cause when I was listening to it the other day, I'm like, okay, so yeah, there is some melodic and some kind of this, crazy shredder kind of i don't know it it didn't have a whole lot of melody that's for sure but there was a lot of notes <laughs> yeah, so, yeah yeah i remember the cat was just trying to play as fast as he possibly could and it, it sounded kind of not where i was really coming from but you know at the same time my maybe my 
style wasn't really, I don't know, maybe that's what makes it different because there's a ton of people that love that EP and, and contact me all the time and want to do interviews. And I, I just don't have that, that much information on it. You know, I mean, I was just kind of a guy that came in and, and recorded that thing with them. And, and it seemed to take on a life of its own, like well after, you know, I'd forgotten all of what happened back then. The internet's an amazing thing. <laughs> oh, I couldn't believe it when I, cause I, I'd forgotten entirely about it. And I, I think I have a cassette floating around somewhere of that stuff. But the next thing I know, yeah, with the yeah, advent of the internet, people are going like, Nick, the stormtrooper. Um, I mean, could you tell me more about it? It was fantastic. And I'm like, not really. <laughs> it was, you know, fun at the time, but I never played a show with them. You know, we just did that EP and I think they tried to get signed. And when things didn't really go well, I, I don't know at the time I, I must've, was it maybe 1984? And I, I felt like leaving LA at the time, I think, you know, I, at one point I got really disillusioned with being out here and, uh, had decided to move back East and that's when King Cobra came about. And so that never did happen. Perfect segue because I was a huge fan of the King Cobra debut record. So how does your relationship with Carmine come about? Well, I had a job at Tower Records on Sunset. Yep. And uh, I was approached by this cat at one point who said, do you play bass? And I said, no, I'm a guitar player. And he, he thanked me. He said, great. I uh, appreciate that. And I never knew what, you know, that uh, was about. I, he might have told me a little bit about the project or something. But at one point later, I think he called the store and he talked to me and he said, hey, do you mind if Carmine comes down and talks to you? We're looking for a guitar player now. And so shortly after that, Carmine did come into the store and met me and uh, set up an audition. And evidently, I got the gig. Now, at that time, did you have blonde hair? Or was that something that happened once the band was put together? No, that happened after. In fact, he uh, he was up front. And he said, "Look, I'm you know I'm doing this thing, and I, I all the guys are blonde." And I thought, "Yeah, you know, if I'm getting paid and my hair looks cool, sure, why not?" So yeah, I didn't have a problem with that. I I mean, I I come from a as you guys already talked about a theatrical background. Yeah. I mean, at one point before while I was going to college. I went on the road with this band called Black Pearl back east, and we wore huge white fright wigs with kabuki makeup and platforms. And, you know, it was, as I've said before, it was really cool for me because I felt like I was behind a facade of some kind. And I, I could sort of get my showmanship together, you know, and, and uh, you know, I could swing my guitar around and make all these funny, weird faces and develop a character without really having to worry about being embarrassed by it or having to face a crowd. Because once I got done with the show, I took off the fright wig and took off the makeup and I could just wander around the crowd. And nobody knew who I was. So the point being that, you know, with King Cobra and the sort of showmanship that they, that Carmine wanted to uh, pursue was right up my alley. So I'll ask the obvious then, uh, were, did you grow up a Kiss fan? I did not. I saw the Destroyer tour, but I was, I felt like I, that wasn't really my thing. Um, I like pop songs and all that, but I, I just never was really into them. I had the, so what's that? The record, the black record that, uh, it might be their second one. 
it's got them or she on it. Anyway, I had that record. That's Dress to Kill, I think. I never was much of a fan when I was younger. You know, I grew to appreciate them later on. Yeah, which is a surprise based on kind of what we just heard from you. That's why I, that's why I asked the question, because it sounds like, you know, you would have loved to have been in Kiss. <laughs> you would have gotten the kabuki makeup and everything else and been able to walk around in the crowd afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I was more of an Alice fan. I loved Alice. And if I would have had my choice, I'd have been in his band. Yeah, right on. So Cobra toured with Kiss, and they were just coming back at that time. But that Maiden tour must have been crazy. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Um, I mean, certainly that was my first experience with arenas. You know, again, it was, I felt like I was made for it. You know, we went out and had uh, a great run and, and they treated us very well. And we seemed to do well at the shows. Yeah, that was a, a wonderful experience. In fact, you know, there was, it'd be hard to imagine now, but there was some controversy back then. I mean, we played some, some kind of out there places, one of them even being maybe a high school gym that people were protesting, you know? So, I mean, I felt like I was a part of some, real interesting times back then they were protesting eddie man i'm not sure if it was like people weren't into uh, risque records or lyrics i know a lot of them were you know i don't want to call them christians i think they were religious zealots that didn't feel like kiss belonged in their town and and we were sort of a part of that you know vicariously so yeah I i think it was people just you know with Jesus saves signs out there, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Steven was mentioning ready to strike. I like both albums. Well, I, I actually like throw of a lifetime better. It seemed to be almost a little more pop oriented. Almost. I remember the first time I heard it, I'm like, this sounds like survivor. It's almost like a straight up pop record. The songwriting seemed to change a little bit over those two records. Yeah. And the reason is that, the record company made it a mandate because as good as, you know, that first record is and, and as much as people like it, it was considered a failure fiscally. I mean, it didn't do what the record company expected and it certainly didn't do what we were hoping for. And so I think we had a two record deal and capital, you know, pretty much said flat out, you guys need to have a hit. You guys need to write songs that are more accessible and will be more radio friendly or that'll be the end of it. So, you know, I know it, it really rubbed Dave the wrong way. He was responsible for much of that first record and he definitely didn't want to cater to, you know, the record company and their ideas of uh, more of a pop record. But again, as I've said, that's right up my alley. I'm a pop guy, you know, so I had no problem writing songs that were more melodic that were you know catchier and and had hooks and weren't necessarily as heavy perhaps you know so ultimately i remember uh johnny and mark and i would get together and and come up with ideas and uh i don't think dave feels as strongly about that second record as you do because he he sort of watched the band go from from his vision you know almost to mine and uh, I became a much bigger part of the writing process. And, you know, that's the result of it. I mean, it's it's way more of a pop record. And, and ultimately, it failed. But that was something that the record company demanded of us in order to stay signed. 
So, yeah. you know, there really wasn't really wasn't any choice. I mean, we could have said fuck you and and just made the heaviest record possible, but you know, there wasn't much of a future in doing that. But you could look at it the other way too and say if we'd done that and stuck to our guns, you know, certainly plenty of bands have taken off in that position. You know, Rush is an example of that. I mean, they were about to go down the tubes until they came out with 2112. So, you know, who's to say that couldn't have happened too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So now Mark Torian, he must have been in King Cobra for a minute. Did he finish off a tour? Uh, he, it was literally a cup of coffee. I mean, we went to Spain and did a couple of shows there. And then we came back. And really, the only shows I remember playing back here were a couple of shows here in L.A. And then we ended up just trying to uh, get signed again. And I know Carmen was, was running around and talking to Paul and Gene from Kiss, and we ended up doing a couple of their songs, and it, it just turned into like this this really desperate sort of atmosphere, and I didn't want any part of it, so that was my cue to leave. And then here comes a Bullet Boy, so which that first album, I'm assuming it pretty much. I know Kiss and Kitty was a King Cobra song, but the rest of that stuff was pretty much from scratch, right? Uh, yeah, very much so. I, I brought a couple of songs to uh, King Cobra and, you know, like I said, they were trying to do, or Carmine, I should say, was, was trying to do anything to sort of get the band signed and get some, some money flowing again. So I, I think Kissing Kitty was the only song that ended up on the record that I brought. There was a couple of other heavier things that didn't make it on the Bullet Boys record. But yeah, I mean, I, I quit the band and I talked to Lonnie and Mark. Lonnie was also in the band. And I said, look, you guys, this is this is a fast train to nowhere. I'm going to bail and I'd love for you guys to come. Let's just get something new going and start writing songs and make our own way. And they were both, to a man, horrified because, you know, this was their big break to get in. It was for the biggest band they'd been in and they weren't, they hadn't seen, you know, the long haul that I'd been through. So it was like a new thing for them. And, and they said, no, nah, man, I think we're going to stick with this right now. So I, I got into my apartment and started writing songs and started auditioning other players thinking I was on my own. And they finally came around and, and uh, we rehearsed. In fact, David came down. The other guitar player came and played with us a couple of times. But uh, I don't think he was feeling it. And he had some personal stuff going on. So yeah we found a drummer and i had a bunch of songs ready to go and we just started writing for uh what we hoped would be you know an opportunity to record and was there ever talk of of having a second guitar player in the band did you guys ever entertain that that idea well interestingly enough uh, mark plays guitar as you may know and i broached the subject because virtually everything i write is for two guitars or at least it was at that point and is to this day. So I brought it up to the guys, to Jimmy and Lonnie. And uh, I said, look, any place, what can we have them? And they both looked at me like, Mick, please understand this is not going to be good if we do this. And I persisted. I said, well, let's just see. I, you know, I don't know anything about him. Let's, let's just give him a shot, you know? And he came in and it was a colossal mess. And, uh, was very clear to me why those guys were saying it wasn't going to work. So yeah, that was the end of that. And I mean, honestly, I don't, I, there's no way that you can convince me that that band would have been near as successful if you didn't have a lead singer front man, as opposed to a, 
guitar playing front man. I just, uh, I, I would never buy it because I think that that was desperately needed at that point in time anyway in music. Yeah, it was without question the right decision. Yeah. So it sounds like there were thoughts uh, that the band maybe at some point would implode within the first year, but the lineup ended up lasting, what, six plus years. Did the later years kind of become more tolerable as the band went on or, or got worse? No, it, it got worse. Okay. And it, it was, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what crystal ball you're looking into, but you were absolutely right. I mean, I noticed from the right from the get-go that I was not going to get along with Mark very well. And I was in a very different place than all three of those guys, frankly. So it was, I think, probably more difficult for me. I think without a doubt, it was more difficult for me to sort of stick with it because, you know, from a personality standpoint, there were a lot of clashes almost daily. Right. And from my standpoint, you know, my position felt like in that band that I was just in damage control all the time because things are always happening that were coming back to me. And by virtue of being in the band, you know, it's uh, an association that, you know, never seemed to end. If something stupid happened, you know, I was a part of it because it's a guy in my band doing it. So it was, uh, yeah, it was very difficult. But as I tell anybody that talks to me or wants to know what my thoughts are on being successful, you have to stick with it. I mean, you know, as, as you guys probably imagine, of the 1% of the bands that are successful in this business, you know, the rest of the 99% fall away because they just don't stick it out. You know, something happens, something, you know, goes wrong in the band, you have a fight and somebody quits, right? And that's, that's why the great majority of people don't get anywhere because they don't see it through. They don't work out, you know, the little things that you need to get over in order to uh, stick it out. And I'm, you know, I'm like uh, example number one of having to go through that. You know, and that's interesting because that leads me to a question that personally I was always wondering. I spent a lot of time in record distribution companies and I spent some time on the road as a tour manager in the uh, early 90s. So I've had a pretty good glimpse behind the scenes at how things work. But one thing I'm not quite sure of and don't understand is how is it that when a band comes together and it's a band, how is it that one person ends up owning the name? Is there some sort of a buyout? Is there, you know, what how does that all happen, right? That's what I'm trying to understand because Mark obviously has the name and is out there doing the thing with the Bullet Boys and you guys are operating under a different thing. But can you explain or give me some insight as to how that all happens? Yeah, I can't speak for other bands and what they're going through, but in our circumstance, we landed on the name that we liked and ended up having to sort of acquire it. So once we did that, the name was owned by all of us. I mean, we were Bullet Boys and had all the rights to the name. And after the passage of time and three records, in my case, there was an incident at the palace, uh, one of many incidents that just ended up being the straw that broke this camel's back. 
So after a sound check, I went upstairs. I gathered everybody around. I said, look, um, I'll promote this record. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll go on the road, but I'm not making another record with that guy. I'm pat it. And I'm quitting as soon as our promotional obligations are done. And that ended up resulting in me giving up my portion of the name, as did Jimmy, in an effort to just get away and walk away with a clean slate, not ever having to see the singer's face again. I just wanted to get away. So I took my gear and left thinking that, okay, if he gets the name, he'll go off, he'll just make records and that'll be the thing. Well, I didn't really expect that he was going to be playing my songs and making a living off the history of the band. I mean, Mm -hmm. call it naive, call it what you will, but uh, it just didn't occur to me that, you know, he was going to make a career out of my band. Right. So um, that's how that came about. I willingly gave up the name and I recognize it as a mistake at this point. But at the time, I, like I said, I just wanted to distance myself very desperately from that situation. <laughs> well, you're not unique. I mean, we've heard this before with other musicians and other bands. But when you say you gave it up, I mean, do you sign a piece of paper and they don't, you know, they don't cut you a check or nothing? No, no payoff for your portion of the band or anything like that. You just say, Hey, I'm done. I'm walking away. And then I'm assuming at some point you probably had to sign a piece of paper, right? Yes. There, there is a contract that stipulates, you know, certain things. And, uh, for my part, uh, I just, like I said, I just wanted my gear. And again, you know, it, it should have been handled with lawyers. It should have been You know, there should have been some forethought. There should have been, you know, the idea that this guy was going to go out and be able to make money and, you know, virtually drive the name into a dumpster. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I didn't consider. But, you know, there's a laundry list of things I should have done differently. I should have taken more control of. I mean, it's as Keith Richards said once, it's the price of an education, but uh, it's been a pretty hefty price at this point. Yeah. Wow. So let's, okay, Bullet Boys is over, mid-late 90s, 2000s. You had your own record label for a while. Like, you were still making a living through music, I'm assuming? And that was, yeah, that was part of it. I mean, part of the decision-making on my part was that I just wanted to move on. I wanted to do something, you know, new. And, you know, at the time, as you guys remember, sort of a new influx of music came in to being during that time. And, uh, you know, it looked for all intents and purposes like, and, and I don't associate our band with, you know, the quote unquote hair bands of that time. I never felt like we were a part of that, but, uh, regardless, you know, it looked like that whole genre was dead and buried. So I wanted to move on and do something else. And, uh, felt like I did that, you know, with some records that I have, I made over that time, but I also wanted to do something that was more ambient and I just had all these really restless musical goals. And yeah, that took up most of (laughs) the decade, the nineties, you know, until I uh, started uh, another rock band later on. Now. uh, Okay. I got to talk about lies, deceit and treachery again. So we were, you know, you guys were the first show on the boat. And I remember walking away from that hour going, Oh my God, there's 52 bands that are somehow got to play after that. Like there's some bands that are not going to be able to touch what just happened. 
including oh, people that shall remain nameless. I remember turning to Steve and was like, no way they're going to be able to do that. That's not touchable. <laughs> oh, you guys rocked it. You absolutely did. So, I mean, it took a while for Lies, Deceit, and Treachery to get together. Was just kind of a timing thing or trying to get Lonnie and Jimmy back? or Yeah, it was a timing thing. Jimmy and I have worked on and off together for the last probably over 10 years now, just you know, getting together every once in a while and putting some tracks together and working out and jamming here and there. And then Jimmy somehow met Andrew and he told me about Andrew and, and we got together. And at the time I wasn't even living in LA. So the, you know, distance was an issue, but we got together and played a little bit. Lonnie ended up showing up, you know, for a little bit. And I'm not really sure what happened after that. I guess schedules came to be, and uh scheduling conflicts i should say so that version just sort of disappeared and we continued to work together at least jimmy and i lonnie was out of the picture at that point and andrew had moved on and we found another singer who uh we worked with for quite some time tried to get an original band together and and that fell by the wayside at which point andrew stepped in and filled in for a gig that we had previously scheduled and that's kind of how LDT came together, you know, when we uh, ended up playing our first boat last year with Andrew. And ultimately, he was just filling in. He was supposed to be like a fill-in singer, and we ended up having some pretty good chemistry, I think. Yeah, so it's not unusual for musicians nowadays to be in several different projects, and that's how you guys make a living, and that's uh, that's, you know, good for us, the consumers, because... Uh, we get, you know, great music out of the whole deal. And I had heard a lot of good stuff about lies, deceit, and treachery from the previous cruise, but I really had no idea what to expect. I knew you and Lonnie and Jimmy would be great together because that core, when I saw it in the 80s, was always as tight as a gnat's ass. So I was excited about that, but I was like, you know, Andrew, I'd heard him with Last in Line. I really had never seen him live, so I didn't know what to expect. And I remember walking out of that show uh, with Sonny, the first show, and I said, I, I, I had turned to my wife at some point because she was, she was there with us, and I turned to her and I was like, I can't believe how fucking good this is. And Andrew is unbelievable. He is hitting all the notes, and the difference between Andrew and Mark is Mark has something that can't be reproduced in his voice, which is like this sort of soul raspy thing. So I didn't know how that was going to come across when Andrew was basically doing his own thing and bringing his own thing to the music, but I didn't miss it a bit. I, I was I was blown away by his stage presence. I was blown away by his his voice, and I was I had intended on seeing you guys at least once, but I made it a point to make make sure I saw you twice on the boat. That's how blown away I was by the show, and I had to share that with you because that was my feelings at the time when I saw the show. So there you go. <laughs> Well, you got me blushing. Thank you. Those are very kind words, and, and uh, I can't thank you enough for sharing them. That's uh, You didn't have to say any of that, and it means a lot to uh, all of us. But, uh, yeah, Andrew is singing these songs in a way that I 
don't remember them being sung even back then because, you know, it's difficult material and he's a super talent, takes care of his voice and takes care of, you know, his instrument. And it's fun for me because I haven't heard these songs sung like this, uh, maybe ever. So um, it's as fun for me as it is for you. And again, I, you know, I get to do uh, with these songs what I wasn't able to do on the first record. I mean, I know you, you love that first record, but it's not a little known fact that I was horrified when I first heard the playback of that because it just sounded too sparse for me. I had a completely different idea of how that record should sound. And I wasn't comfortable with some of the things I had done on it. It didn't feel finished to me, frankly. So uh, now that, you know, because again, we, we didn't really play much before we recorded that record. I think we played six, seven, maybe eight shows total. So the material was all very new. And, and most of uh, what I did was spontaneous. So, you know, over time and over tours, I start to think, okay, this is what I would have done. And this is how I would have played it. And that's kind of where I'm at with this material now. It's, it's actually very fun for me to sort of get it to where I like it. But, uh, yeah, Andrew's uh, Andrew's the man for this stuff. It's uh, hard material to sing, and he pulls it off flawlessly. So as much as I love those records and love hearing you guys do that, please, 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 God tell me that Lies, Deceit, and Treachery is working on their own material. Well, we are. We are. As a matter of fact, I'm, as soon as I'm done here, I'm going to call Andrew and send him a, another track. He's got a couple of... Uh, things that he's done and and of course he sounds great we played at the uh i mean i I hesitate to call it a sound check because the audience was there at the pool stage but we played a little snippet of something that we have worked up so that'll uh certainly be coming out we already have interest from labels and it's really just a matter of getting our scheduling straightened away so that we can get together and and put a record in the bank so i think that i have heard or have do I have uh, something or have heard something like one single song from Lies, Deceit, and Treachery, like something with maybe Devil in the title or something? Yeah, there's a song called Devil that we released with the former singer. And yeah, that's out there. It's It should be pretty easy to find. But that was, yeah, the first and only thing we've released at this point.
Okay, and that's not with Andrew then? No, that's not Andrew on there. Okay. All right. Yeah, I knew I'd heard something. So, yeah, the plan is to finish material, secure a record deal, and then go from there, I guess. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we're hoping, obviously, we can get something going uh, this year or at least at the beginning of next. Right. Uh, And then you guys, I think you're still continuing to do one-off shows here and there, right? Yeah, I think think we just locked something down for Toronto in July. And uh, the shows are are starting to come in now. I mean, it, it was really only at this cruise that things started to sort of fall into place with management and some booking. So, you know, we're still, uh, we're still kind of a baby band and still kind of getting it together, but it's on the way. That's awesome. I cannot wait for that. And I'm sure you got to work around Andrew's schedule because I know they're, they're out with last in line right now. Yeah. Everybody's sort of busy doing their own thing. And, but you know, at the same time, everybody wants to make time for this band and, uh, everybody's really excited about putting something together. So we'll be looking forward to it. Well, so as a ax man yourself, are there any current guitar players you feel are underrated or not very well known that you're, uh, you're listening to these days? Well, yeah, I, I recommend everybody get a hold of Ian Thornley's work with big rack and his solo stuff. He's a phenomenal guitarist and, and a super talent, great singer too. So I listen to a lot of his work Obviously, I'm a big Chris Whitley fan who sadly passed away a number of years ago. Uh, very different stylistically, but his work should, you know, live on in the hearts and minds of people forever. Always there with Billy Gibbons and Bill Standbys. There's a ton of guys. I mean, guitar players are so good now. It's it's kind of amazing how talented, you know, people are, you know, even people on the boat. I mean, you couldn't really, uh, with the exception of one, find a poor performance at all so yeah there's a lot of guys that i could name unfortunately they're kind of escaping me right now yeah there were a ridiculous amount of guitar players on that boat that every time you think you're a guitar god you bump into another guitar god and it's like wow yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. right we heard somebody we heard somebody say yeah i thought i was a great guitar player that i saw nuno <laughs> and then i was done <laughs> Yeah. uh, Yeah. And the guy saying it was a good guitar player. I don't remember who it was, but it was somebody really good. Yeah. Good stuff. Awesome. All right. So during the end of these interviews, usually we like to do a lightning round kind of fun stuff, uh, kind of this or that. So uh, you up for something like that? Oh yeah. Okay. All right. So song you wish you wrote. There are a lot of those. The residuals on happy birthday would be great. Mick Soida. Yeah, <laughs> I I would like that myself. Mandicello by Cheap Trick. Oh, okay. okay. Are you a radio guy, serious guy, or you listen to your iPhone and you stream a lot? Like, how do you consume music nowadays? Uh, I buy CDs. And in fact, I just recently archived all over a thousand of them. And they're all in iTunes. And, and when I listen to music, it's usually from a mix you know, a shuffle of all those CDs. And it's interesting because I, you know, I would buy CDs with the intention of listening to them and often never did. So I'm hearing music that I've owned for decades and have never heard at some point. Yeah. I did the yeah. exact same thing. I, I had 
like thousands of CDs and ripped them to save yeah. space. Yeah. How about uh, yeah. favorite song to play live? Oh, my favorite song to play live is probably going to be Day of the Eagle by Robin Trower. Okay. Oh, great. How about uh, two Desert Island albums, like two albums that, God, everybody needs to listen to front to back that you absolutely love? Uh, Jean-Luc Ponty's Cosmic Messenger and so many. I have so many Desert Island records. Give me one second. One second. Are you looking through your CDs right now? <laughs> I'm looking through, yeah. I'm in iTunes right now. I knew it. But I'm only in the B's. So it could be it could be a long time. Sorry, I know I know you guys it's wanted okay. to do. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. You guys were thinking this was just going to be an off the cuff. <laughs> Hold on, I can do it real fast here. Hold on. Well, maybe not so fast. You, now you're trying <laughs> to look through so your easy. phone. You're totally cheating. This should be so easy. I, I've got so many. You guys just stunned me with these questions. I promise the artist um, ain't gonna be disappointed. All right, <laughs> David Gilmore's first solo album. Okay. <laughs> How about the best concert you remember attending? Like you were just in awe. Farewell to Kings, Rush. Awesome. Oh, wow. Your favorite guitar. I'm sure it's probably strapped on you right now. Who knows? No, I wish. Um, my favorite guitar is probably my 77 Explorer. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Is, is there a pedal you can absolutely can't live without? No, I don't really care for pedals. I, I like a delay and, uh, I have, uh, an overdrive, but, uh, yeah, I'll give a shout out to my Bogner Wessex. It's an overdrive with a uh, Rupert Neve component in it. And, uh, yeah, I really like it. Yeah. Are you a Zeppelin guy or are you a Beatles guy? Uh, Zeppelin over the Beatles. Yeah. Okay. In fact, okay. it's funny. I, I hesitated to even put my Beatles CDs in because I know that, you know, I've heard every one of those songs so many zillions of times. I wouldn't, wouldn't bother me not to hear them again, but I ended up doing it. <laughs> Dude, it's the All Beatles. Right. <laughs> the last one is tough. Muddy waters, Albert King or John Lee hooker, Albert King. Oh, that wasn't as tough at all. <laughs> no. Yeah. I like my Kings. I like my Al's all, all the way around. And, yeah, that's and great. One of my favorites. So yeah. I think there's one thing I didn't ask you, which is, do you remember what the first rock album you bought with your own money was? Yeah, Iggy Pop's Raw Power. Nice. Or not Iggy Pop's, but the Stooges. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I remember going and uh, I drove up to Buffalo. I think I, I was on my own and, and I went into a record store. And you know what it's like when you're a kid going through the record store. And I just, that picture just got me and I knew it was going to be raw and and dangerous and i was all over it felt like i actually when i bought that record i felt like i was doing something wrong that's how cool it was <laughs> well mick i want to absolutely thank you for your time today i mean i cannot wait to see ldt again so as soon as you guys got some dates out there i mean i will travel to see you guys because it was amazing where are you guys right now I spend most of my time in either Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or San Francisco, California. Gotcha. And I'm in Hotlanta. Oh, nice. There's so many festivals down there. It seems like we should be on one of them at some point. God, I wished you were on this festival coming up at the end of this month. They're having this Rocklanta festival with a bunch of bands that you guys would fit right in with. I wish you were coming. Yeah, I wish we were too. But, you know, hopefully we'll see you guys before. You're going on the boat again next year, right? I'm in 100%. 
It's in the talks. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully I'll see you guys well before then. Yeah, absolutely. We will, uh, I'm sure, run into you at some point. Perfect. Mick, it's been a pleasure, buddy. Yeah, the pleasure's been entirely mine, you guys. I sure appreciate it. And uh, you guys have a safe uh, rest of the week and have a great weekend. Hey, uh, before we let you go, is there anywhere you want to tell people to uh, be able to get all the information on uh, lies, deceit, and treachery and keep up with what's going on with the band? Uh, really, our Facebook page, Lies, Deceit, and Treachery, pretty much has everything uh, okay. on it that you want to know about. Um, we're going to have some music coming up here shortly, so stay tuned for that. I know there are some uh, shirts available left. So if you log on to either my Facebook page or the LDT page, you should be able to, uh, you know, be in touch with us and we'll get back to you right away. If there's anything you need to know or just want to say hi. So yeah, look us up. Awesome. Uh, so that's it for us. We will talk to you guys next week. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle and roll. Play us out, boys.
please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is dead. My mom is right there. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.